it is a lens through which we rightly see reality. And the effect of sin on that lens is it blurs it, makes it fuzzy, makes it a little blurry. And now if you've ever tried, have you ever tried those like impairment goggles or beer goggles that you put on your face and it's supposed to simulate what it looks like to be drunk? Because I'm sure none of you know what that's actually like, so you'd have to wear the goggles to actually see what that looks like. And those, those goggles, they make your vision fuzzy. And Belshazzar here, we know he was drunk. We know he was drinking a lot of wine, and so his vision was probably fuzzy already. But then the effects of sin are essentially the same, right? It's that drunken fuzziness where you kind of see something, but it's a little off. Pay no attention to that. And so, <laughs> and so this is the effect of sin. That sin will blind us. It will make things fuzzy. And it will... I guess I can just pop. We're good. All right. Just like that, these, the sin will become a distraction, and you won't be able to hear a thing that I say because all you hear is this chime of sin trying to get your attention and trying to get you to focus on it. And this is the effect. This is the effect of sin, that it will make our vision fuzzy. And then we'll look at God's Word, and it'll be a little fuzzy because all we'll really see is our sin, and it'll be hard, harder and harder to see. In Romans chapter 1, Paul was talking about this effect of sin, and he talks about people who had just given in to their sin and the effect of their vision, essentially, that sin had on it. He said they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. And then Paul goes on in that chapter to explain that, you know, when we pursue sin and when we seek after it, God doesn't hold us back. He gives us over to that. And, and the result of that, as Paul wrote in verse 31, is that they have no understanding. That sin will make one blind to the truth. It'll make your mind completely blind and unable to understand here. And this is Belshazzar's situation. He could see this writing, essentially, but he was blind to its meaning. He didn't understand it at all. He was just left confused and afraid. He had everything he ever wanted. He was the ruler of Babylon. He had every luxury and every pleasure at his fingertips, but yet still he's left here confused and afraid and blind to what this message could read. He couldn't read it. And while all this is happening, if we remember, this is the book of Daniel, right? And Daniel, he's been living in Babylon this whole time. At this point, he's an old man. A lot of time has passed. But all throughout these years, Daniel has never abandoned God. He still maintained his devotion to God. And everyone seemed to know that. And the queen comes into this party, sees all the chaos that's going on, and, he reminds Bel and she reminds Belshazzar, like, hey, didn't your dad have this guy Daniel who could interpret dreams and stuff like that? And so the queen comes in in verse 10. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, 
and he will tell you what this writing means. And so they're going to go get Daniel. And I think it's a little funny that they refer to him as Daniel here because as they allude to, he was given a Babylonian name, right? Belteshazzar. But the irony is that they knew Daniel was from Judah. They knew Daniel was a Jew. And so even though he's supposed to be this political leader in Babylon, right after they've desecrated Jewish religious artifacts, they're like, hey, Daniel, uh, we'd really like you to be Jewish again for just a little bit. <laughs> okay, we, we touched your things and some weird things happened. So uh, can you fix it? <laughs> they go get Daniel. Verse 13. Daniel was brought before the king and the king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father brought, my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. And now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, then you will be clothed in purple, given a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Now, if you remember, Daniel had been given the second highest position in the kingdom before, so I'm sure he's thinking like, wow, third in charge, so cool. Thank you so much. <laughs> and so Daniel's response, if you read there, is he says, no worries, keep your gifts, give that to someone else, I'll read it and interpret it for you anyway. And at this point, remember, Daniel is not a young man anymore. He's up there in years. He's probably in his 70s or 80s. And so when he's asked to come in and translate, instead of just getting to the point, he does what old men do. He goes into a story, right? He gives this whole history lesson about what happened in the past. He gives an entire recap of a previous chapter and then says, all this stuff happened. And he says, God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. He says, Belshazzar, your situation is just like Nebuchadnezzar's. And Nebuchadnezzar was driven mad, and God punished him for his arrogance until, this is in verse 21, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets them over anyone he wishes. Belshazzar already knows this, and Daniel calls him out for this. He says, but you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And then Daniel goes on to list all the things that he has done wrong. He points out all the sins at this party. He says, you did not honor God. You have not repented. You have not turned to God. You have just done all these horrible things. And I'm sure Belshazzar is a little shocked, like, hey, I just wanted to translate it. <laughs> and now Daniel is just calling out all the sin. He's just naming it one after another this is a sin, this is a sin, this is a sin, points out all these things. Now, with the Hebrew language, a lot of words come from metaphors, or they come from images, and the word sin, as many of us probably know, right, it comes from archery. It's an archery term, essentially to miss the mark, or to miss the target. Sin is to miss the mark. It is essentially to miss the point in life. And if we know from Jesus' teaching that all the, the commands of God are to love God and to love others, then sin is anything that keeps you from doing those two things. It's anything that keeps you from living the life that God has called you to live. And what we have to recognize about sin is sin is not just like unintentional misses, unintentional misses like, oh, we're just not perfect so we can't hit the target, but but sin is also just this rebellion that is in our nature, that is inherited. 
the very fact that we consider sin an option, that right there is the sin within us. And the frustrating part about sin is that it is inherited. That it's something that all of us have is from our ancestors, right? Honestly, it's kind of annoying that we just inherit this, right? In Romans chapter 5, Paul wrote about sin, and he said, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all had sinned. And this is the frustrating part about sin, is that because of what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, all of us are counted as guilty even before we've done anything wrong. That's because we've inherited this sin. We're all stuck with this genetic disposition to sin. And so oftentimes, we do it intentionally, but it's even just in us subconsciously and unintentionally. And now I'm going to bet that none of you in this room are throwing crazy parties like Belshazzar with concubines or stolen religious artifacts. Just going to assume that. If you are, I'm a little hurt that I've never been invited, to be honest, but I wouldn't come, but still an invite would be nice. Um, but nonetheless, even if things aren't this bad, even if we're not throwing these parties, we still have inherited sin within us. And Jesus, when he was describing what this meant, he made it very clear, and frankly, he kind of hurt my feelings, when he said, you've heard that committing adultery is wrong. But I say that even looking lustfully at another person is committing adultery. And it's like, well, Jesus, by that standard, no one is innocent. And he's kind of like, whoosh. Yeah, that's the point. Because sin is more than just the little behaviors we do. It's more than just the intentional bad things that we like, but God just somehow doesn't like. Sin is this inherited nature in us to miss the point that God has for our life be rebellious their very nature. And if you need any proof of inherited sin or of our fallen nature, I would just recommend spend some time with toddlers, just a few minutes. You'll quickly realize that they don't have to be taught how to sin, right? We don't need to be taught this. Somehow we just figured that out. <laughs> and I have, I have some really good friends who, they're both just amazing, saintly people just perfect in every way. They have five kids. The first four kids are just perfect. They're like this beautiful, perfect homeschool family. They like live on a farm, and their older kids are like perfect in every way and well-behaved. And their youngest is a little monster, like just very rebellious, very naughty, always breaking things and just misbehaving. And it really doesn't make sense how he could be related to them or how he could be related to his siblings. But He's just that way. And, and this family, they're very generous and hospitable, and they're always inviting people over to their house. They like to invite a lot of college students or single moms or, or people that have need to their house, and they feed them and spend time with them. And one of the problems they kept having with this rebellious little son was that he would take people's phones and just break them, smash them on the ground, like out of nowhere. And so they had invited, invited like some single mom who was really struggling and needing help pulled her phone out for just a second, kid grabs it, smashes it. And so they just felt horrible. And my friends are like, never really had to like discipline their older kids very much. And they're like anti-spanking. And everyone was telling them like, you just have to 
spank him. You just have to do it. You got to go there. And it was just killing my friend. He couldn't do it. He's like, no, I've made up my mind. I'm against this. But after that, he was like, well, we've tried everything. It's worth a shot. So he was thinking, okay, I'll spank my son. My friend, he's like 6'5". He's a huge guy. And he goes in, and he's thinking, like, all right, I just know, I know I've got to, like, hit him hard, but I'm kind of scared. And he goes in after this, and, and he spanks the kid. And he was telling me the story, and he was saying, I knew, like, man, I, I hit him hard, and I was worried. I probably, like, damaged him or broke something or did something horrible. And then he sets his son down, and he goes, now, if you ever do that again, you're going to get another spanking. And his five-year-old son, who just got a spanking, looked him in the eye and said, okay, that wasn't that bad. My friend said he broke down in tears and cried <laughs> and realized he's like, well, I can't like spank him again. I like missed the whole point. But, but that is like, that is just the nature of inherited sin, of just rebellion, of just how it's in our nature. My friend had done everything he could, even stuff he didn't want to do, but somehow still just didn't work there. And so we have this in our nature. The good news, if you're a follower of Jesus, is that we have the Holy Spirit who, who gives us a new nature, and, and so we're able to not just be blind to our sin, but to, to see it and to go after it and to have a chance to identify it and repent of it. We're not completely free from it, but at least we have a helper in it. Belshazzar here, he didn't turn to repentance. He didn't turn to that chance that we have to repent. He's guilty on all counts here. He's done it all. And Daniel pointed out, you know, you even worshiped other gods who can't see or hear or understand. And this is the second thing that sin will do, is that sin will change us. It will change us, and what sin tries to do is it tries to change us into the very things that we worship, right? If we worship anything other than God, then just as God doesn't hold us back from that, he'll let us have it we're not going to have that thing. That thing will have us, and we will become what we worship. And Belshazzar in this situation became just like what he worshiped. He worshiped gold, bronze, and created things which don't see, hear, or understand. Well, could Belshazzar see, hear, or understand? No. When we worship anything other than God, we will become like that thing. And that thing which we think we can consume or use will, in fact, consume us or use us. Now, Barna, in their book, which is about two years old now, it's called Faith for Exiles. Um, they did this big study of Christians around North America, and they reported that the average millennial Christian consumes over 3,000 hours of digital content per year. It's a lot. But only 150 of those hours is what they would consider to be Christian content. That is a 20 to 1 ratio. And this is important to recognize because what we worship, what we focus on, that's what we'll become. That's what you give your attention to, and that's what's going to consume you. And the author of that book, Dave Kinnaman, he compares our modern day um, to Babylon. He says that we essentially live in digital Babylon, where we know that the Babylonians had this intense process of assimilating the Jews and assimilating exiles into their culture. And just like that today, with all of this content coming into us, it's the way that the world continues to assimilate us today. And what we have to recognize is that, you know, if we watch four hours of silly TikToks a day and 15 minutes of Bible teaching, 
I would hesitate to say you're going to be very knowledgeable about the Bible, right? Maybe you know some funny jokes or you found some good dog videos, but don't expect to know much about the Bible then. Or, or if you listen to five hours of political commentary and then one hour of Bible teaching, okay, well, you're going to view the Bible through your political lens instead of your political lens, through your, or instead of your politics through your biblical lens. And if there's ever an imbalance in the ratio, if we're replacing God with other things, then that's what will become. That's what will form us. And oftentimes, when it's imbalanced, then we'll be formed much more likely to something else other than Jesus, or we will just become more like those other things. And this is important to recognize. The nature of sin changes us, at least tries to. And if that's the case in our lives, then, just like here, the writing's on the wall. So Daniel laid all that out, and he finally got to the point, verse 24. He gets to the translation. He says, therefore, because of all this, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. The inscription, this is the inscription that was written, mene, mene, tekel, parson. And then he tells them what these words mean, mene. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, or Parson, your kingdom is divided and it will be given to the Medes and the Persians. Many, many Tekel Parson here. And so Daniel is saying, Belshazzar, your life has been evaluated by the God of the universe and it's been found wanting and now your kingdom is going to be taken from you. It's going to be given to another. And just to look at these words real quick, this first one, mene, your days are numbered, your reign is being brought to an end. This is an important reminder when, when we look at our sin, right? It's important to remember, bless you, it's important to remember that we're mortal, that because sin has entered the world, that death has come in, right? And though we will Though we will live in heaven and in eternity with Jesus, we have been given purpose on this earth and in this life. And so, for the Christian who knows we'll spend eternity with Jesus, our morality is motivation. It's motivation to tackle our sin. It's motivation to love God and to love others, to, to hit that point in life, not just to waste it on other things. And, and as we read through the scriptures, especially if you read through any of the wisdom literature, if you're in Ecclesiastes or Psalms or Proverbs, one of the common themes is this reminder of your, mortal of your mortality. The reminder that your life is here one day and gone the next. That anything that could blind you or cause you to become something other than what God made you to be, don't give that any of your time because your days are numbered. Your life is here one minute and it is gone the next. And the longer I preach, the more time I'm shaving off of your life. You are one more second closer, and now another second. And for the families visiting, you're probably thinking, oh, what am I supposed to say to that, amen? <laughs> you're thinking, man, is your pastor always like this? Maybe. You could come back next week, but then again, you might not be here to find out. <laughs> I'm sorry, we had to go there, but, <laughs> but it's true. I mean, our life is here one minute, and it's gone the next. And, and this 
mortality, this reminder of that, to be motivation for us to tackle our sin, to live into the purpose that God has for us. Yes, we'll live in eternity with God, but he calls us not to waste this life and this time here, to get sin out of the way so that we can love God and love others. And the tragic story about Belshazzar is he didn't do this. Uh, He had one life and blew it, and this night his life was going to be taken. That second word, tekel, your life has been weighed and found wanting. Life has been weighed and found wanting. And and it's funny, there there was actually a critique of the book of Daniel for years because they had no historical evidence to prove that Belshazzar ever actually existed. Um, There was no King Belshazzar as far as they knew. Up until the year 1950, and it was in the 50s that they found this cylinder out buried in the desert in southern Iraq. It was written by or for Nebuchadnezzar, who was Belshazzar's dad. And on this cylinder, it mentioned his son, Belshazzar. And I think the very fact that for years people thought Belshazzar didn't even exist is just proof of how unimportant he was. Like your life has been weighed and found wanting, and it was so wanting that it caused people to question the legitimacy of the Bible. That's pretty bad. (laughs) His life and his cause and everything seemed to be all about himself and seemed to be just indulging us in, being blind to truth, just being consumed by these other gods. Because of that, his life was found wanting. And if it wasn't for the Bible, he would have been completely forgotten about. And no one would have known this guy ever existed. And then the last word, parson, well, we see in verse 30 exactly what that means. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. And the history books confirm this, that the, the, I cannot say those two together, but the Medes and the Persians broke in, and they rather easily conquered the city. And lucky enough for them, Belshazzar had gathered all the important people into one room. So fish in a barrel for them. Easy victory. And so the finger of God had inscribed this writing on the wall, this message of that judgment was to come. And it said, Belshazzar, you've been found wanting. You need to turn to God in repentance. Apologize for desecrating these sacred objects. Turn to God just like Nebuchadnezzar did. But he didn't. He didn't. And what we have to recognize is when, when the finger of God points at us, May we, unlike Belshazzar, may we repent. May we turn to God. Because I believe that at times in our lives, the finger of God will point at us, will point at us, and call us out of our sin. And at that moment, Belshazzar, I think he could have repented. I think he could have turned everything in a different direction. He could have said, Lord God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or, Or Daniel, please pray for me. Please help me with this. But he refused. And he didn't repent. And so the writing was on the wall. Your life's been weighed. And this is going to be the end. But we have another option than Belshazzar. We can repent and turn to Jesus. And what we get to recognize is that the writing is on the wall for us, not because the Persians are coming in and going to get us, but because God is offering a way out. He is reminding us 
that Jesus died for us. He was crucified and he bore our punishment and was judged for us so that we could repent. Death is essentially knocking on our doors, just like the Medes and the Persians were right outside. And he's saying, it's not too late, but don't waste any more time. Turn to God. Turn to God. The book of Daniel shows us that that we can become blind by our sin or that we can become what we worship other than God. And because of that, just like Belshazzar, if we do that, then we're essentially just going down with the ship. We're going down with the kingdom. And if Babylon falls, then we're going to fall with it. And so repentance is turning to God and asking for help, accepting the way out that he has for us. And I know that repentance, right, it's a scary word for a lot of people. It's it's something no one likes to talk about, but I think repentance is an encouraging word because it actually means that there's another option. It actually means that there is a way out. There's a chance to ask for help here. And repentance in the New Testament, again, it's like a metaphor or an image. It means to change one's mind or to turn one's mind, to turn one's thinking from sin, from the world, to God. To turn away from our natural tendencies and our inherited sin to turn to God. And I think repentance has become such a scary thing because, you know, for years, sin was a very scary thing. I think when I was growing up, we didn't talk about those things, but now it's kind of worked its way back, and I think even pop culture and non-Christians understand sin, right? They understand that things are wrong, and have become very passionate about that. But most people don't see that there's also an opportunity for repentance. There's also this way out. And so I think because our culture is able to recognize sin but not recognize repentance, the tendency is just to fear anyone finding out about our sin. Just hide it because if you were to admit in any way that you're not perfect or you've done anything wrong, that's the end. There's no chance for repentance. There's no way out. So we try to hide it. But here's the thing. There's, there's no point in hiding it, right? We all know that can't be true. We all know that we are messed up. We know everyone else is messed up and that there's no amount of virtue signaling or heroic work that can fool us. We know that. And if we remember faith as a lens through which we view the world, well, repentance is accepting that reality. It's viewing reality and just accepting the humble truth that we do need help. We do need a way out. It's facing our sin and saying, yeah, I, I do need to repent and turn from this. And I will just commend you guys here at Common Ground for this. The fact that I don't think we are a people who hide this. And I've been very impressed by Common Ground for, for being honest about our sins in this regard. I know that I've walked and talked with many of you who have been very open about, hey, you know, I have this going on and I need God to change that. Or I'm really struggling with this and I am calling on God to help me in that, and I need help. And this has been an amazing community of people who are honest and open about that and turn to God in repentance. And so please know that, first off, I will never be surprised by your sin. I will never be disappointed by that. When you turn to God in repentance and confession, that's exactly what I want to see, and that's exactly what I love to see. What is hard is when Repentance is not there, right? When we try to excuse something or we make 
other reasons for why it's not actually wrong and why there doesn't need to be repentance. That's when, for me, it gets hard and I go, I think the writing is on the wall. But when someone openly and honestly says, yeah, I need to repent of this, that is beautiful. I don't remember who said it, but someone mentioned it in here before that the first time they ever came to Common Ground, they were a little freaked out because during our prayer time, people started naming their sins or asking for prayer for some of the things that they had going on in their lives. And, and they were, this person was sitting there thinking, like, man, this church is messed up. Like, these people have issues. And then he stopped and thought about it and realized, wait, no, everyone does. These people are just actually honest about it and actually looking to change. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And church, I would much rather us be a people who are quick to repent than a people who are slow to sin because I haven't found a church yet that's very slow to sin. And so may we be a people who turn to repentance over and over again and immediately. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he said, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So the message here is that if you are a sinner, good news, Jesus died for you to save you. There is a way out. If you're not a sinner and you've never done anything wrong, hey, good for you, good luck. But if you are like me, like Paul, then there is a way out. And I think most of us know that reality, but we have a hard time understanding what our response to that reality should be. And as we see from this passage, the response should be repentance. It should be people who fully understand that God's mercies are new every day, and any time we turn to him in repentance, he turns to us in grace and mercy and patience. And he will not just send us out, but he wants us to choose repentance. And this is the good news. This is the good news. And even though we have this sin, even though we were born with this, of course the good news for us as followers of Jesus is that we stand in Christ, right? And Jesus never sinned, never did. And so when we face judgment, when our life is weighed, we are not put on the scales, Jesus is. And Jesus is put on the scale for us, and God says, looks like you're good. Jesus never sinned. And so for those of us in Christ, we can have hope that our life is going to be weighed not by our sin, but by Christ's righteousness. And it's going to look good. Now we have a dartboard at our house at the parsonage. Raise your hand if you've ever played darts on this dartboard. A lot of you, man. Yeah. <laughs> so this, I really just wanted to show off what I did here. Um, but when we first moved here, I think for every night for three months, Lena and I played darts on this dartboard. And playing against Lena, one thing you learn about Lena, she's good at everything, and it's really frustrating. And she got a bullseye, and so then it was my turn, and I got to throw a dart, and it stuck right into the wing of her dart. I don't know the rules of darts, but I'm going to say this counts. Right? This counts as a bullseye because her dart's in it, and my dart is connected to hers. And this is basically how righteousness works, right? Jesus hit the target, and he's in the bullseye. 
And it doesn't matter if we hit the target because we get carried in by him. And so if you're going to argue and say that this dart doesn't count as a bullseye, then you are arguing with the gospel. <laughs> Lena's downstairs. She can't defend herself. <laughs> but this, this is how it works, essentially. This is how it works, that because of Jesus' righteousness, we're, just, we're counted as righteous. Count it. He might have got it. We didn't. But hey, it's fine. Somewhere in the rules, it, wor- it checks out. And so this is what's offered to us. Sin might blind us. Sin might change who we are. But Jesus offers us a way out. So when the writing is on the wall, we just turn to him and we accept his work. So let's pray. Well, Father God, we just come before you humbly. As people who have been blessed, given so much that we don't deserve. We just thank you for your grace for the fact that you carry us in, despite our sin, despite our unrighteousness, but because of your Son, you've given that to us. But God, we just recognize that there is still sin in us. There is still this tendency in us to turn away from you, to turn to our own leadership, to turn to our own wants and desires apart from you. And God, we just ask for help in that. We just ask for help in that, that you would help us to see those things and that you would help us to repent. We thank you for the hope that we have knowing that that's not the end of our story, knowing that regardless of, regardless of what happens, that we have righteousness because of what Jesus did. But God, we want to take advantage of this time that we have and we want to serve you with it. And we want to see your gospel proclaimed to the nations. And so would you just rid in us anything that would get in the way of that? anything that would make us blind to the reality in front of us, anything that would turn us into something other than you. We want to be formed into Jesus, not into anything of this world, and we ask for your help in that. So Jesus, we just thank you for all that you've done, and we commit to being a people who turn to you in repentance. So Jesus, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.